Okay, do we have these sheets passed out? Do you have uh, lesson number 28? If you want to write any notes on the right there, that's up to you. For those that are new, on Wednesday night we've been going through the Gospel of Mark and been trying to cover about half a chapter each week. We've got three more lessons after this and we'll be done with the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark portrays Christ the servant and um, the... Uh, Matthew portrays him as Christ the King, Mark, Christ the Servant, Luke, Christ the Man, and John, Christ the Lord. Those are kind of the themes. The thing about Mark is it has the least number of red letters in it uh, than of all the other ones. In fact, far less than Matthew, Luke, or John. So this is not a book about his teachings and his parables and everything, but it's a book about his service. Thus, we call it Christ the Servant. Now, this is fine print again. We don't have lessons this long. So, we just got the fine print on one side there. Sorry about that. And I'll see if I can read it. If not, I'll grab my glasses over there. But uh, we went through verses 1 through 36 last week of Mark 14. Now we're up to Mark 14 and verse number 37. And uh, we are going to uh, try to get down to the end here <coughs> in a short period of time. So let's get started, okay? Verse number 37 says, And he cometh and findeth them sleeping, and saith unto Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldst not thou watch one hour? Now, one of the things we've been doing on these studies is we've been putting Charles Spurgeon's notes on the back this is the only verse that there is a comment about in the Spurgeon Study Bible. And he says this about verse 37. I think I know where he's going. Um, you know, I've never heard anyone else on earth say this besides Spurgeon, but let's just read what he says on the back and maybe we'll get an idea of what he's, what he's talking about. Notice the back of your sheets for uh, chapter 14, 37. Spurgeon comments this. Mark tells us here that Jesus especially said that to Peter. Mark is the gospel of Peter, and Mark wrote his gospel from Peter's point of view. So Peter, in the gospel of Mark, records the worst things about himself. For only here is it recorded that the master said these words to him and not to all three disciples. Now, I was thinking about what Spurgeon says here, and you know, any commentary might be a little bit of uh, an opinion. But remember, Mark was not his name. His name was John Mark. Mark was his surname, and that surname means a defense. I think uh, that uh, they, we use the word Mark, or the surname Mark, so it's just easier to remember the books of the Bible. <laughs> That's my opinion. Because uh, otherwise it would be Matthew, John, Luke, John, uh, because his real name was John, but his surname was Mark, so we say Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Now there's an interesting observation about Mark that we find in 1 Peter 5 and verse 13. I'll read this to you. It says, The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you, and so doth Marcus, my son. Now, Marcus is the Latin 
uh, name for Mark, John Mark. And notice what Peter calls him in 1 Peter 5.13, and Mark is my son. Now you may remember, Peter really was the first pastor of the church at Jerusalem. And that church used to have prayer meetings in Mark's mother's house. Uh, In fact, when Peter was in prison, it says the church made prayer unto God for him without ceasing in Mark's house. It was his mother who hosted the prayer meeting. And so Peter and Mark were very, very close, going way back to the beginning of the church at Jerusalem. That's the church that Jesus planted. And Peter took it over really as the first pastor. I know all the apostles worked out of it. But when Jesus listed the apostles, he said, first, Peter. And that word first means of, of, of uh, prominence, uh, first in rank. Uh, he wasn't the first one called, uh, but Jesus listed him as first when he ordained the twelve. And, and so he would be what we might call the main pastor. The main pastor. Everything rises and falls on leadership. So going back to our text, I, I believe Peter knew John from his youth, John Mark. Uh, from his youth, maybe led him to Christ. Maybe that's why he called him Marcus, my son. And um, uh, that might be what Spurgeon's thinking when he calls Marcus the gospel of Peter. And Mark wrote about Peter, from Peter's point of view. And some of the worst things we read about Peter, as we'll see before the end of the chapter, are in uh, spelled out as in specifics in, in the book of Mark. So whatever. Um, and uh, so they were, they, were, they were good friends, and perhaps this guy, Mark, was a convert of Peter's. Anyways, that's what Spurgeon says. So, uh, But anyways, why, going back to our text, verse 37, And he, Jesus, cometh and findeth them sleeping. That's uh, James, John, and Peter, the three that he took with him a, a little bit farther into Gethsemane. And uh, he left the other eight, uh, maybe towards the bottom of the hill of Mount of Olives, I don't know. And then he took Peter, James, and John up farther, the inner three, some people call them. And then he went a stone's throw farther and prayed, came back and saw them sleeping and specifically addressed Peter. Peter, um, why sleepest thou? Couldst thou not watch one hour? Now, to be honest with you, you know, Peter's going to be the leader. And sometimes God deals a little bit harder with the leaders than with others. Uh, I remember being the youngest boy of three. My dad let me get away with so much stuff that my brother George never got away with. I mean, my dad let me participate in sports. George was never allowed uh, George, I mean, it was work for him. Everything was work. And, and I was running five years of track and one year of volleyball and intramural basketball and stuff. I got away with so much. And uh, George, but George was the firstborn, and he was, he was the one in charge. And to this day, I mean, my dad's been in some really complicated uh, health issues the last, since last Friday. They haven't consulted me once. Uh, they're talking to George. 
And I'm glad at this point in my life he's the oldest and I'm the youngest. But man, my dad used to really get all over George. And uh, George had it a lot harder than I did. And, uh, you know, I think, I think in ways, if you're going to be a leader, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Because uh, others might mess around, but you can't. Uh, and he, he de- deals with Peter, and he's specific with him. And uh, so uh, that, that, that's what's coming out. He, he's going to use Peter. Um, he's going to give Peter the keys of the kingdom. All right? And Peter is going to be the one who takes the gospel and the Holy Spirit to the Jews for the first time ever. He's going to take the gospel and the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles. And then he's going to take the, or the Samaritans, and then he's going to take them to the Gentiles, Cornelius, in Acts 10. So he took the keys of the kingdom, opened it up to everybody, and now he doesn't need the keys. So don't, don't, think, you know, don't think he's still got the keys or anything like that. He just used them. Opened up the three doors and said, okay, all Jews, Gentiles, and half-breeds are welcome to get saved. Uh, the door's open to you right now. So God used Peter for some very, very special things. And uh, so he says to him in verse 38, watch ye and pray, lest you enter into temptation. That's not just for Peter, that's for you and I. We're tempted constantly. And watching and praying is the way of escape that we have been taught by the Lord. And if we are continually succumbing to temptations, it is because we are not watching and praying. When he taught us to pray, he said, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So if you are having struggles with temptations, uh, don't try harder. You know, that's it. Tomorrow I'm going to try harder. No, no, pray more and uh, watch more. Because the spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. And I don't care who you are, your flesh is weak. And um, my flesh is weak. Uh, The flesh never gets strong. Galatians 3.3 says, Having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Of course not. Uh, Your flesh is wretched and so is mine to the day they bury us in the ground. The flesh will always be weak, but the Spirit is willing. And again he went away and prayed and spake the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. Neither wist they what to answer him. I mean, they were just, what a a night they've had. They've been in the upper room with him. He's washed their feet. Uh, They've had the Passover dinner. Uh, Judas has gone out to betray Christ. Uh, They've learned about the Holy Spirit. They've learned about the abiding life. They've learned about prayer, asking in Jesus' name. All in the upper room, uh, Mary comes in, anoints him uh, with ointment. I mean, it has been one long, emotional, spiritual night. And they're just amazed at the things that he has told them that is going to happen to him. They didn't believe it, but they would shortly. And so... uh, their eyes were heavy. And he cometh the third time and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. It is enough. The hour is come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Now, I think there's a pause after verse 41, just my opinion, but verse 42 says, Rise up, let us go. He that betrayeth me is at hand. So there we see the experience in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
And now in verses 43 down through 53, we're going to see the arrest of Christ. The arrest of Christ. Nobody's death, burial, or resurrection in all of human history has ever been detailed with the specifics of that of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's the most important that has ever lived. And immediately while yet spake cometh Judas and one of the twelve, with him a great multitude with swords and staves, which are like spears, <coughs> from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And uh, so it is the, uh, the religious leaders of, of a group that some have called the Sanhedrin who send these Roman soldiers to arrest Christ. And he that betrayed him had given them a token, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, the same as he. Take him and lead him away. And as soon as he was come, he goeth straightway to him and saith, Master, Master, and kissed him. And so here we see the most infamous kiss uh, in all of uh, human history, that of Judas Iscariot. It has been observed that uh, Judas... Because of the, the blood that uh, Jesus had uh, been praying and his forehead uh, burst forth with blood, he had prayed so fervently, and I have never heard of anybody else doing that, but maybe Judas kissed the blood that could have saved him. Uh, Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful so you have the most infamous kiss in all of history here uh, by the worst of all men Judas Iscariot and they laid their hands on him and took him and one of them that stood by drew a sword now you know who that was right from the other narratives that was Peter and smote a servant of the high priest you know who that was from the other narratives his name was Malchus and cut off his ear. But the, the, Mark doesn't tell the rest of the story. Jesus picks the ear up, puts it on the side of the guy's head, and he is perfectly healed. And I wonder, I wonder what happened. I hope we find out in, in eternity what happens to these guys. You know, what did that do to him? Uh, you know, I mean, just having your ear lopped off would be so painful. But then to have somebody stick it back on and it, and to have it healed, I, I, I hope that was some kind of a testimony to him to at least consider Christ uh, in his own life. And, um, but it's not in Mark's account, but you've got to read the other narratives. And Jesus answered and said unto them, verse 48, Are you come out as against the thief with swords and with staves to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you took me not but that the scriptures must be fulfilled. This is almost like what we would say today. Isn't this a little bit overkill, guys? You know, I, I'm, I'm the most peaceful man you've had. I'm in the temple every day teaching. You know what I'm like. I mean, it'd be, it wouldn't be like this, but here's I mean, I mean, if SWAT team showed up here at Faith Bible Baptist Church, you know, because we got so socialistic or something like that, and they came in and put me in a, a straight jacket and leg irons and, and uh, march, frog marched me out of here. Some of you would say, boy, I, we know that guy, Pastor Cole. He's not perfect or anything, but this is a little bit overkill here. Uh, he would have walked out if you just asked him and gone in the paddy wagon or something. But, uh, but that's kind of what Jesus is saying here. He says, you know, I was, I was with you teaching. Uh, 
in the temple every day, daily, and you took me not. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. What scripture is that? Well, one of many, but in Zechariah 13 and verse number 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man uh, that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts, Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. And so uh, this and many other prophecies were fulfilled that night. And uh, it says, They smote the shepherd, they took him, and... Notice verse 50, and they all forsook him and fled. Now, you remember earlier in the chapter, last week, uh, Peter, of course, said, there's no way I'm going to deny you. And then it says, and all of them said the same thing. Every one of them lined up with Peter and said, we would never, ever, ever forsake you. And uh, they all forsook him and fled. Boy, the best of men are men at best, aren't they? And uh, we got to watch out what we say in our pride uh, or in our self-confidence um, because it'll come back to bite us. Now notice this guy in verse 51. And there followed him a certain young man having a, a linen cloth cast about his naked body. And the young men uh, laid hold on him. And he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. And uh, I want you to notice uh, this here. We have no idea who this is or what's going on. But uh, he uh, left the linen cloth. Now maybe he left it for Christ. Maybe it's all he had to give. Maybe he was like the lady earlier in the chapter who gave her you know box of ointment uh most precious thing she had and maybe this was all i mean it was cold that night we know it was cold because we're going to see peter here warming himself shortly at a fire and maybe this was what he could do for the lord i don't know uh exactly why that's in the bible verse 51 but it might just be another example of of somebody and young men you know you you you, you can love the Lord and you can give Him what you have. As this young man did, God thought what he did was important enough to record it in eternal uh, word. And they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. Now, the high priest in verse 53 is Caiaphas. If Judas Iscariot is the most infamous man in this chapter, Caiaphas has to be in second place. This guy was a scoundrel. This guy, now Mark never calls him Caiaphas, just calls him the high priest. But if you go to Matthew, Luke, or John, it's Caiaphas and all three of those. And uh, he's the high priest and he is a scoundrel. This guy even had the spiritual perception of what was going on. No one else did in his day. In fact, I want to read for you um, what it says in, uh, did I write it down? In uh, John 11, I think. Let me check that. This is something Caiaphas prophesied just a little bit earlier. In John 11 and verse 49, 
and one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest the same year, said unto them, You know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for that nation, and not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Boy, a guy with that much insight, you would think, would fall down at the feet of Jesus and worship him and believe in him with all of his heart. But boy, the worst enemies Christ ever had was religious leaders, and the worst pride on the planet is religious pride. It's the worst. And uh, these guys were so nearsighted that they, there are few days on earth, and their religion was so important to them, they thought, this is, this is the Christ. He's going to not only die for our nation, but all the nations, and gather into one all of God's people, so let's kill him. Uh, rather than saying, let's worship him. And th- this is Caiaphas. He's, the only, he's, he's correcting the other members of the Sanhedrin who say, we don't know what to do with him. He says, oh, yeah, don't worry about it. And uh, when you have the word council, in verse 55, and the chief priests and all the council sought for witness against Jesus to put him to death and found none, that word council is a Greek word, Sanhedron, from which we get the English word Sanhedrin. And so the Sanhedrin is believed to be a council of 70 elders in Jerusalem who are the most high and mighty of the religious leaders. Perhaps included among them were Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who we'll see later had nothing to do with the Sanhedrin's decision to put Christ to death. But these were the religious leaders that all the people were looking up to for guidance from God. And uh, so I believe that with the insight Caiaphas had, and then with the way he treated Christ, he's about as bad as Judas Iscariot. You can almost put him on the list right under him uh, for evil. And so it tells us now in verse 54... That's the arrest of Christ. Now we come uh, to Peter following afar off, just for a couple of verses, verse 54. And Peter followed him afar off, even into the palace of the high priest. That's Caiaphas. This guy lives in a palace. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. And so there's a little pause now before we come back to Peter in verse 66. But... Um, We we should give Peter some credit, at least for following the Lord. I guess following afar off is better than not following at all. But um, does that describe you? Let's just make this personal tonight. Would you or I be described as following the Lord afar off? Or are are we close and intimate and right there with Him? Boy, they all forsook Him and fled and and we know from the other narratives that John actually went in to the palace of the high priest. Peter was outside, following afar off, but within eyeshot of Jesus. 
as Jesus would look upon him later. Now then, we have the trial of Jesus in Caiaphas Hall. And that goes from verses 55 down to 65. So let's read this kind of quickly. And the chief priests and the council sought for witness against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. And if you read all of the, uh, the, the scriptures, it tells us uh, that the chief priests were there, the high priest was there, the scribes were there, the lawyers were there, the Pharisees. I mean, this was quite a gathering of the, the highest religious leaders of the day. That would be scary for us humans, but the Lord was, uh, God was with the Lord, the Holy Spirit was with them. Many bear witness against him, but their witness agreed not together, and that's, of course, because it wasn't true. And there arose certain and bear witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. Well, it's pretty amazing that Christ's preaching on the resurrection uh, was so out in the open that his worst enemies could quote it. They didn't quote it completely accurate, but they could quote it. Remember the centurions. They quoted it to Pilate. They said, this deceiver said that in three days he's going to rise again. He made that so clear to everybody that they said, okay, go take a guard and make his tomb secure for three days. We know he's just going to lay in there and rot. Nobody's ever done that before, but Jesus was different. And he rose from the grave and the tomb was empty. But his enemies could quote the Lord almost perfectly. Uh, Destroy this temple and in three days I'll build it up again. But he spake of the temple of his body. And uh, he did rise from the grave three days later. Now if Christ emphasized that in his ministry... And when you get to the book of Acts, you can't miss the fact that they just emphasize the resurrection, the resurrection, the resurrection, the resurrection, the resurrection. We should start with that. Instead of trying to argue with evolutionists or humanists or socialists or communists, we should say, what about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? And start our defense, our apologetics of the faith. Start with the resurrection. Don't start about, you know, the creation, the gap theory, all that nonsense. Start with the resurrection when we're talking to people. That was the model of Christ and the model of the first century church in the book of Acts. What do you think about the resurrection of Christ? Now, they may just flatly deny it, and you can't do much for a fool who denies history, but at least you give him something to think about. But neither did their witness agree together. Verse 60, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? But he held his peace and answered nothing. Now this is a fulfillment of another prophecy, which is in Isaiah 53 and verse number uh, 7, that famous chapter, probably the most famous in Isaiah, says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shears is dumb, so openeth he not his mouth. And uh, so he was pretty much quiet while all of this 
mock trial was going on. But he did say one thing, and let's notice that in the next verse. This is very important to our doctrine. Again, the high priest, it's Caiaphas, asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And then he said on, And you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. So Caiaphas' question uh, had to do with his deity, verse 61. Christ's answer was affirmative, but also talked about his humanity, the Son of Man. He's both. Uh, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the Blessed. That's divinity. That's deity. That's God. He's the Christ, the Anointed One, the Son of the Blessed. But He's also the Son of Man. He's human. And He identifies Himself with us all the time. Eighty-five times He called Himself the Son of Man. He only referred to Himself as Jesus once, just once. Only once did he ever use his, his uh, proper name in all of the Gospels. But Son of Man, son of, and every time he said that, it should, it should bless your heart. Son of Man, the Son of Man, the Son I came down to identify myself with you. You are why I'm here, you human beings. You men, you women, the Son of Man. And... Uh, he was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. And today at the throne, uh, what does it say? There's one God and one mediator between God and man. The what? The man. The man. Christ Jesus. Humanity. Divinity. Just believe it. Don't try to completely explain it or understand it. What would we need faith for if we could understand everything? But without faith, it's impossible to please God. Jesus was the God-man. And uh, He should be worshipped, and we should just be thankful. He's, he's our brother. The Son of Man means, I'm your brother. He's our big brother. Amen. And we're not alone going through what we're going through, and He knows the feeling of our infirmities, having been tempted in all points like as we are, and yet without sin. So the high priest... We read his prophecy earlier in John. So notice his reaction here. This is ridiculous. Verse 63. Then the high priest rent his clothes. I mean, he was the guy that just said, look, Jesus is going to die for our, our nation and for all the people, the world, blah, blah. We know who he is. Now he rends his clothes when Jesus says, yes, I am the Christ, the Son of the Blessed. And he puts on a big show. Is that, this has to be one of the greatest hypocrisies ever recorded in human history. And uh, what need we any further witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What think you? This guy is just almost like, you know, some of these politicians you hear nowadays, you know they're lying. They know they're lying. <laughs> and that they do it anyways with boldness. And uh, their father, you know their father is a liar. And he's the father of lies, Satan. Satan is a liar. And here, here he is. What further witness do we have? And he just said to everybody, he's going to die for the nation. What further witness do we have? 
And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. Now, up to this point, Jesus has suffered, at this point, this is pivotal, uh, Jesus has suffered two ways. In John chapter number 12 and verse number 27, it tells us this, Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I into his hour. This hour, we, we forget sometimes. When we think of Christ's death, we think mainly of physical suffering. He suffered in his soul. Now is my soul troubled. In the next chapter, chapter 13 and verse 21, he says this. The Bible says this. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. See, you and I are a body, a spirit, and a soul. He was troubled in his soul. That's the spiritual realm that has a relationship with God. He was troubled in his spirit. That's the emotional realm, feelings, thoughts, the will. He has suffered in his soul already. He has suffered in his spirit already. And now we come for the first time now and we see in verse 65 he begins to suffer physically in his body. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to buffet him or beat him and to say unto him, Prophesy. And the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. So when we say Christ suffered for us, let us remember he suffered in his soul. He suffered in his spirit and he suffered in his body literally spit on and beaten. And this is just the beginning here at verse 65. Now, we close tonight with Peter's denial. And as Peter was beneath in the palace, there cometh one of the maids of the high priest uh, of of Caiaphas. And when she saw Peter warming himself, and that was back in uh, 54, he started warming himself, she looked upon him and said, and thou also wast with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied, saying, I know not, neither understood I what thou sayest. And he went out into the porch, and the cock crew. Now, this is interesting here. It's, this is a rooster crowing after his first denial. And... Uh, A maid saw him again and and began to say to them that stood by, this is one of them. And he denied it again. And a little after, they that stood by said again to Peter, surely thou art one of them, for thou art a Galilean, you're a northerner. And thy speech agreeeth thereto. You ever notice how... People's dialect can change if they're from the north or the south or whatever, from the Bronx. Um, And they said, man, you're not from this area. You're one of them. You're from Galilee where this Jesus is from. And uh, he denied it again. uh, And he began to curse and swear. Well, that's what you do. When all else fails, just curse and swear to make the point, you know, make your point uh, louder. That's (laughs) 
Seems like a, a lot of people do that, don't they? Well, if you don't really believe me, I'm going to add some profanity to my declaration here. Then you'll believe me. Now you know I'm serious. And so now he's cursing and swearing. And uh, just to, to make his point. Uh, I hate cursing and swearing. I used to do a lot of it before I was saved. and uh, Not now. God has helped me. God has delivered me. There's been times it's been at the end of my tongue and He gave me the strength to say, no, I can't, can't say that. And the second time the cock crew. And Peter called to mind the word that Jesus said unto him before the cock crow twice. Thou shalt deny me thrice. And when he thought thereon, he wept. Now that was earlier in the chapter last week. The cock's going to grow, crow twice. But I see a little bit of mercy there. I mean, thank the Lord the cock crew the first time. You'd think if you were Peter, like, there's my warning. There's the two-minute warning. Uh, this is almost over here. Uh, but isn't that something? Now, Mark's the only one that says, so people, this is where people have troubles with the Scripture. They say there's contradictions in the Scriptures. Because the other narratives just say the cock crew. Well, no, there's, you, you put all the narratives together. Uh, just like you may have four different newspapers that report on the Super Bowl four different ways or some other event. And if you took the four different newspapers and put all of the information together, then you would come up with your conclusion. So that's what we do with Scripture. And so the Lord just mercifully, and I can't figure this, I grew up on a farm. I, don't, I never heard roosters crowing at midnight or whenever this is going on. Uh, they crow in the morning. They, they think they're so, roosters think they're so proud that if they crow in the morning, they make the sunrise. They really do. They think, look what I just did. And I used to hate those things. And on the farm, we had them everywhere, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock every morning. I don't remember at nighttime, though. This is kind of a miracle, if you ask me, of God using animals. He, he spoke through donkeys. He's going to speak through an eagle someday. And just, God can do anything. But um, he gave him a warning. He gave him a warning. And that's the goodness of God. And uh, Peter goes out and weeps. And uh, Luke twenty-two sixty-two describes it as he wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. Have you ever wept bitterly? I've wept bitterly for hours. Uh, over the condition I was in at one time in my walk for the I mean for hours in my brother George's apartment down in Ephrata, Pennsylvania, almost uncontrollably. I wept and wept and wept over the way I had treated my Lord who had saved me from my sins. Have you ever wept bitterly? Where's our tears today? Uh, churches have dry eyes, empty altars. And then just, uh, have you ever wept bitterly? Well, I'm not that bad. You don't know scriptures. What, 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 you don't know God. You don't know the holiness of God. There's some times where we just say, God, I don't know what to say. I am so sorry. And just cry. Just cry. But what a friend we have in Jesus. A few days later, uh, a couple weeks later, Peter's going to finally say, you know, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. And Peter's going to say, and Jesus is going to say, uh, 
Forget it, Peter. Let's put all that behind you. I'm going to use you in a great way. And uh, when I thought I was disqualified, God was just starting with me. Isn't that something? When I thought I was disqualified, God was just starting a life. And look, Peter would go on from here and for at least 37 years would faithfully serve our Lord and would die for Him and do great works for Him in Jerusalem and amongst the Jews that were scattered abroad. You know, we read about the Gospels and we think, boy, this Peter was a real goof-up. Yeah, for a short time, for a few years, till God got some things out of him. Then he was a giant for God. A giant for God. And you may have to go through some humbling, and I may have to too, to, to get some stuff out of us. But then God can use us. So let's uh, remember our Lord tonight by turning page 317 and we'll be dismissed.